I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you all for listening. And uh, thank you especially to everybody who's had a chance sometime recently to recommend the show to a friend. That is how word spreads more than any other way, especially since we're not on fucking social media or any of that shit. So please do tell a friend if you like the show or just somebody you think would be fun to argue with about it. I do appreciate it. If you like the show and you would like to hear more, then please go to sleeverickets.substack.com and sign up for The Secret Show. If you just put your email address in, I will give you a week's uh, access free. And uh, you can sign up for um, a year at a time for like 250 a month. It's super cheap. It's going to get more expensive in January, but there's 20 episodes now and more coming all the time. I'm, uh, I'm getting ready to record one tomorrow night, which may already be out by the time you hear this. This week, we've got a boys night, boys show. I don't know what to call it. It's just the boys this week. Uh, I've got Brian, Cameron, and me all together talking about three short stories. We read this really good essay by Joshua Megan from Poetry Magazine way back in the day. It's called I Thought You Were a Poet. Uh, Alice shared it with us, and we were Uh, batting it around on the group WhatsApp thread. This ended up leading to, uh, we we ended up uh, talking about some short stories that were all about madness. And Alice uh, gracefully and swiftly bowed out. Uh, But we do have have, uh, three stories to talk about today. We all wildly disagreed about them. The first one is A Distant Episode by Paul Bowles. Then we talk about Manly Conclusions by Mary Hood. And finally, we talk about Agnaro by M. John Harrison. Three really different stories. And as I said, we have very different (laughs) thoughts and feelings about them, but it was a pretty fun conversation. I will try to get some version of them accessible in the show notes so that you can follow along if you so desire. But with that, let's get to the show. start with the Paul Bowles because that was the first one shared? Sure thing. It's it's what I first thought of um, okay. when we discussed madness. So the, the story is about this uh, professor of, he's a linguist, and he comes to this small fictional town in Northern Africa, pre- presumably. But 10 years ago, he had been in the same village for three days, Long enough, however, to establish a fairly firm friendship with the cafe keeper who had written him several times during the first year after his visit, if never since. So like that's not a friendship, right? And three days is not long enough to have to have a firm friendship with someone and to think of it as a firm friendship when he stopped when this friend stopped responding to his letters, you know, nine years ago, it's again makes you doubt this guy and it makes you think he's pathetic. He doesn't have much going for him. He thinks very highly of himself, but we look down upon him. Um, And the story, just to summarize it uh, overly quickly, is he's in this town. He goes to visit his friend Hassan Romani. Turns out Hassan Romani is dead. He doesn't quite know what to do with that information. And in a conversation with the waiter at what had been Hassan Romani's cafe, uh, he demands to purchase uh, camel udder boxes, which... (laughs) 
I don't think exist, but I, I think Paul Bowles made this up to be a particularly absurd souvenir. Yeah. They're not even camel udder bags. They're no. boxes. It's such a so weird So somehow you take the skin off of a camel udder and turn it into a box. Like a nipple and box. It, it's yeah. horrifying, right? Like what could that, why of all the materials, of all, of all the animals, would you use to make a box? And it's not and even that, like precious. It's like, yeah, I'd like to pick up a few camel letter boxes. But then he gets into it because the the, the um, waiter sort of looks down upon it. He's like, you sure you want to, that's kind of like <laughs> fucked up. He, he, he gives the impression in his look. And then the professor doubles down. He's like, not only do I want a camel, I, I plan on making a collection of, of these camel utter boxes. Make, get them for me, you know, and then they negotiate. And the plan is, is that the waiter is going to bring him to a place where he can buy camel utter boxes. Halfway through, the professor realizes that, oh, maybe he's not taking me to a place to buy camel utter boxes. Maybe he's going to take advantage of some me in some way. Maybe he's going to rob, rob me or, you know, lead me into some nefarious circumstance. Um, they argue eventually the guy leaves and the professor decides to continue walking down the hill towards these people who, again, are going to sell him these camel utter boxes. What happens, though, instead is he is taken, dogs attack, he is kidnapped by this group of people when he tries to fight, quote, something cold and metallic was pushed brutally against his spine as the dog still hung for a second by his teeth from a mass of clothing or perhaps flesh. He's beaten, he loses consciousness, he wakes up, he tries to talk, he could not distinguish the pain of the brutal yanking from that of the sharp knife. Then there was an endless choking and spitting that went on automatically as though he were scarcely a part of it. So the linguist loses his tongue, but yeah. he then becomes a sort of a, how would you describe him? Like a mascot for the, right. He's like a clown whom they bring out. Right. He's, he's like a holy fool type, a jester, right, yeah. a fool, a mascot who uh, learns to shake the pieces of metal that they've they wrap him up body and, metal and he does his little performances when there are um, important uh, dinners. They impress but the performances are not like he's not like conceiving of a performance. Like this is like no. the most brute like animal level of like he just first he just like hops up and down while the kids laugh at him and then like eventually he like they train him to do handsprings and and make funny faces but it's like it's not it's hardly even dancing it's so right and so and the sense we get is that barbarian. is that he's hardly conscious at, yeah. at this point yeah, yeah, yeah. even when all his wounds had healed and he felt no more pain the professor did not begin to think again Later on, talking about the program, Matthew, to which you refer, he easily fell in with their sense of ritual. This is later on and evolved an elementary sort of program to present when he was called for, which involved dancing, rolling on the ground, imitating certain animals, and finally rushing towards the group in feigned anger to see the confusion and hilarity. Later on, he's so valuable, they sell him. Uh, but unfortunately for the purchaser, uh, the uh, after he's sold, he sees an Arabic-speaking man comes to the person um, who buys the professor. He speaks in Arabic. The Arabic-speaking man does, which 
opens up a kind of consciousness again he the, uh to the professor because he's he's able to connect back to his past in some way and, and reach some level of consciousness again um the guy who bought him is furious because at that point the professor refuses to perform the guy who bought the professor goes to murder the people who initially kidnapped the professor the french government gets involved and the professor now reads a couple words in french he combines that with the arabic he becomes some version of himself again he trashes the house runs away uh the story ends with the guard who is french um watching him run away tiens he says to himself a holy maniac and then for luck he takes a pot shot at the professor <laughs> almost hits him but doesn't and the wall against the garage that the soldier leans against gave forth heat left there by the sun but even then the lunar chill was growing in the air and that's the story so so why didn't you like yeah. it why why yeah. what, what, did, I, what cameron i know you had a different response to it than i did and i suspect mine is the least sophisticated response the madness of this story is very different from the madness in Mahigan's poetry article, right? I mean, the magic yeah, yeah, yeah. that you can make an, an argument about how mad the professor is beforehand. And I do think, like, well, he isn't insane, but there's certainly a sense of sort of irrational clinging on to his own sort of power. And he, says, he says, like, I wish everyone knew me when people in the market recognize the guy who's guiding him. I wish everyone knew me in this place he just arrived at. Mm. He, like, looks at this, he, like, squints his eyes to make the moon, like, multiply in his vision. And he says, incredible. Like he is, I mean, he seems like not even child. He seems like brain damaged to some extent. But he realizes that. So he says, I wish everyone knew me, said the professor, before he realized how infantile such a remark must sound. To, to which his companion responds, no one knows you, said his right. companion gruffly. <laughs> so the story is aware of how infantile the character is. But the main madness in the story isn't that. The main Correct. madness yeah. is caused by an extreme influence when the public... Professor is basically tortured, mutilated, and sort of his consciousness is destroyed, and he becomes barely anything but more sort of like a trained monkey performing tricks, right? And the, and the the trigger, as you said, for him kind of waking back up and then and then finding himself in this intolerable condition and then totally losing his shit at the end is that this this one educated guy in the crowd has showed up and has started interjecting into the middle of like the local dialect classical arabic from the quran and so as a professor like he, he it even describes him hearing like gibberish 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 something from the quran gibberish gibberish like he recognizes right. these snatches and part of me thinks like well it's like quotations from his old life that he recognizes but then i also kind of like the idea that that the way that bowles describes this guy a group of men came to the house among whom was a venerable gentleman, better clothed than those others who spent their time flattering him, setting fervent kisses upon his hands and the edges of his garments. This person made a point of going into classical Arabic from time to time to impress the others who had not learned a word of the Quran. And and so part of me, like, I kind of like the idea that it's not just the classical Arabic that wakes up the professor, but like it's the performed pretentiousness of this guy that he sort of like, in a way, this is a kind of a, a mirror of him at an exactly time for in his what life. he was yeah. initially. This sort of intellectual, for the sake of being an intellectual, but actually yeah. a fraud. I, I mean, it seems to me there's like multiple forms of madness, or at least multiple forms of irrationality happening in this story simultaneously. I agree with that, and I, I think that's a, a great read because it fits with why I feel like Paul Bowles has control of this story, where there are a lot of different versions of this story where it's just like. 
something horrible happens and you're like, that's the most horrible thing I've ever seen. And then a new, even worse thing happens. But that exists in sort of this realm of, of horror. But the idea that there is it not only were these moments of uncertainty or unconscious, you know, anxieties in there initially, but that it's the language in the beginning and the language that then brings him to a, an even higher form of madness at the end. It feels like Paul Bowles is, is, has mapped this out and is making conscious decisions as opposed to just seeing like, let me try to raise the stakes, you know, even more. But Matthew, do you, yeah. what's, what's bothering you? Well, so I, all of that seems tr true, and Bowles certainly felt in control, and I definitely, it was the first thing of his I've read, and I, I certainly finished it thinking like, he is a very skillful and controlled and intelligent writer who did a good job building this short story. But the feeling I had overall was one that I, like, it's funny, I often find that like things I like, other people will have this response to. Like, I think, I, I think I've heard people say this about Jonathan Franzen's writing, he seems like a big fucking jerk. Like not the character, but like Paul Bowles, like as a as an as the narrator, as the author of the story, feels like he's just being cruel to his character in a way that like it made me feel nothing. It was like, look at this dumb colonialist baby and look at him be dumb and naive, and then and then he gets his comeuppance, but then it's even more horrible and then just more and more bad stuff. Like to me, that relentless heightening of the the awfulness had the opposite effect it has. Like in a way, like I'm more impressed in a in a horror story with that because a horror story has more compassion for the characters because it evokes horror. We share in the character's sense of horror at this at this awful circumstance. Whereas here it's it feels sort of crisp and accurately described and even like the like the I thought like the the description you write wrote of, uh, you read of his getting his tongue cut out it's very elegant like he he manages not to say all these different he, like he doesn't say the word blood there are all these things he doesn't say in very evocatively describing this physical experience but I felt less than nothing for the character throughout I mean I like I felt like a little wisp of something at his like kind of dumb sentimentality over Hassan Romani. And then there is like a nice sort of, sort of like cruel reversal where you like, hey, there's a French soldier at the end, finally. And then just like takes a pot shot on for good. Like like but part of me felt like you could just like I mean the, the, in a way like the most interesting part of the story was the title because of its ambiguity like there, there is a reference in the very first paragraph to the distant past or the its first or second paragraph and there's some suggest like is the, is the distant past the thing with Hassan Romani or is this itself the distant episode but it, the whole thing felt like it didn't give even the slightest shit about its characters and I thought like okay fine but all like a, I don't care about the characters, and B, like this particular type of madness, which is the madness of having your humanity brutally stripped away from you until you're unable or unwilling to think at all. I, I believe in that, and I recognize that, and I've had you know a few brief moments of like intense pain where that was sort of the case for me, but it doesn't, it it doesn't ring true in the sense of being like, oh, I really connect to that. I feel like, yes. oh, I, I believe I would be that way if you did this to me, but I didn't, I sort of left feeling like very well done, but who cares? Totally fair um, across the board. I, I think that I read it as I kept on, my, my first read, 
which was a, a really powerful experience for me as a reader. I kept on thinking I knew what Paul Bowles was doing, and then I mm. kept on being wrong. But the thing that happened, I found thrilling. Yeah. So everything you're saying, I, I agree with. And I think w when Paul Bowles is confronted with questions like that about, and he's dead now, but when he was confronted with questions like that about stories such as this, he would he, he would say, I wasn't writing about the people, you know, I was writing about the power of the desert or, or something like that, which sure. like we can all roll our eyes at. But I, sure. I think that his, his point is, isn't that there's a hero among us, like the, the lack of the, the, the lack of like magical Arab who comes in and is like smarter than everybody else, like to solves a problem, sure, I find yeah. thrilling, like this yeah, is yeah, yeah. everybody in this story is awful. The linguist yeah, everyone's is awful. horrible. The waiter yeah. who steals from him and tricks him is awful. The people who kidnap and cut off his tongue are awful. The people who buy yeah. him are awful. And then the French guy who shoots at him is awful. There right. is it's, not, it's like everybody is like the white men in a BBC series. They're evil, stupid, it, or weak. Yeah. Exactly. And having a, a, a story entirely populated by those people, I found to be more satisfying than if somebody popped up and was the good guy and, and tried his best, or even was the yeah. humanized guy. I know you're not looking for good yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. You're looking for humanized guys. Even like, and even I, like the grandmother in A Good Man is Hard to Find, which is also a story about yes. horrible cruelty. And she's like, a human she's, being. And, yes. Yeah, she's a hu she's, and she's ridiculous and mocked, yes. like much mocked, but like there's some... Right, and that's my problem with a lot of Paul Bowles' longer fiction and where John Carrillo and I disagree. Where after reading this, I asked him what I should read next and I read three or four of his novels and other than Sheltering Sky, which has a lot of similarities to a distant episode, I tended not to love Paul's, Paul Bowles' novels because of that lack of humanity. I, I kept on yeah, waiting yeah. for a character. And at novel length, that bothers me because it feels like mm -hmm. I should be able to get inside somebody's brain. I don't see short stories like that. I, I see short story the, the pleasure I derive from short stories tends to be like, well played, you know, is, is my reaction at the end. Or like, ooh, yeah. like, you got me there. And maybe that's because I'm a piece of shit writer. Or maybe I just like, in a novel, I want to be able to live inside somebody's brain and feel like I understand the human condition deeper yeah. because of their thought sequences. In a short story, it's like, it's it's quicker and it's more like a, a game that the author is playing with me. And I don't I don't have those same expectations. It's more, it's more versatile. Like there are just more different games you can play that you can get away with for 15 pages that you can't get away with for 300 pages. I mean, you say you can't get into any of the characters' heads. I would say that I feel that I can get into the professor's head at the beginning. Yes. And in the middle, it doesn't really matter that much. And at the end, maybe. But to me, all the other characters who seem impenetrable, in some ways, isn't that a perfectly mimetic reproduction of how the professor is living? Like, isn't, isn't that sort of a perfectly mimetic demonstration of the world that he has been forced into, where everyone is impenetrable and almost hard to understand and hard to know, apart from sort of outer superficial characteristics? Right, Especially but because he spent three days with this one guy ten years ago, and that to him is the definition of a of a real good friendship. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I entirely but, agree, but, Cameron. But I think, like, even though even though you're right, like, it, like the 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 perspective that is easiest for me to get into is the perspective of like the professor living a comparatively normal life for the first few pages. But the the story has so much palpable contempt for him that it's like never did I feel like I I did I feel sort of hooked into that perspective? It felt like I believed it, but he was made to be ridiculous and everybody around him was 
was opaque or hostile. And then it just, everything got more so that way. And I, I guess I like, I, I do a little bit resist the, the argument that like just because some, I think like it can be, mimesis can be really helpful in, in like making the experience of reading the story reproduce the, the, the subject matter of the story. But I think that's, that's gotta be a, a secondary virtue. It can't be the, the primary virtue. Well then let, let's talk about your, the story you brought in because I, I loathed it. And I, <laughs> I think that it, it does a, a really good job of letting you get into the mindset of the protagonist. Yeah. Um, whose name's Valjean, like the Les Mis character? Yeah, it's an odd, odd, is that odd a, choice. Is that a name in the South? Like, uh, I don't, is that I mean, a woman's I, name? I don't, I, like, I, 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 don't, would, I definitely would pronounce it Valjean. Yeah. Just, what? Val Valjean? I would definitely pronounce it Valjean. Valjean. Yeah. Is Valjean um, a name? No, and that's but, that, but also... That, like, the whole, that whole thing started the sort of gradual and nagging sense I had with this story, that somehow... I'd read it all before and it was all slightly cliched and I knew how it was going to turn out. And I, and, and, and like, I did predict how it was going to turn out. Right, and I in this case, you're right. There's only one way this is going to turn out. And it yeah. yeah. Syllable for syllable, exactly the way you think it's going to. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. It was maddening. Like, I don't... Yeah. I, I just don't get it. Like, I don't... Like, the, the, everything that I thought was going to happen happened in exactly the way I thought it was going to happen. Except the you know, only things that didn't happen were, were these weird Southern ticks that like, yeah. I just assume are, you know, alien to me because the South is a different universe. But I, Matthew, defend this choice. Yeah, so this is a story called Manly Conclusions by Mary Hood. Uh, the, I, the I would definitely- Manly Conclusions. Yeah, oh, but I think the Manly Conclusions, like, yeah. I, mean, just, I, I think like the title, the title exists both uh, in and out of quotation marks. I don't think, yeah. I don't think it's possible for you to raise your eyebrows the title more than the story raises its eyebrows of the title but okay yeah i definitely i definitely pronounced the, the name valjean and though i did also have that moment of thinking like huh jean valjean that's not like it also seems to me like a totally plausibly weird southern lady to, like like okay, a girl how went to high many school valjeans with, like, have you heard of either culturally or personally oh it, one, one from right but, it, but and how many like, valjeans have you heard of either personally or culturally none but i think I, like i've just been exposed to so many like seemingly comical idiosyncratic southern names that it just like it, it doesn't it didn't Her husband is carpenter petty yeah, also totally I, totally like incredible. a civil like, war general like, that's, the thing about, or that's, that's <laughs> the thing about certain it's funny like like you, you and i have had this conversation about like certain like certain tropes of like jewish life in new york where like it becomes uncomfortable because you're almost like well it, it becomes impossible to stereotype certain things because like they are the stereotype but i think there's certain things about life in the south where like you can stereotype it all the way to 11 but it just is still accurate <laughs> like yeah and so yeah, like I, this felt to, to me in a weird way totally credible the, the, sorry, Cameron, the weird I over the top names, interrupting yeah. you so you 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 yeah you also defense. hated it but you hated it in a slightly different key than brian hated it in, I, I gathered yeah also i'd like to hit you back with brian's question slightly modified how many good but loving wives attached to like horrible men who are they who are they like they're continuously faithful to and also christians are there like how many of them have you encountered in literature because like like yeah like i've encountered quite a few yeah and, yeah, and yeah. that was definitely also, one of the story but also constantly in life like that's like the, here's okay here, here's my my i'll skip to like my my broad defense like my 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 like headline defense of the story which is that 
both uh, uh, a distant episode and um, Agnara, which we'll get to, which which you selected, Cameron. Those are stories of like madness as an experience of exception, of, a, of an exceptional condition. Like you are you you are stripped away from everything you know, and you're you're brutalized physically and mentally, and like you you are reduced to this thing that is the exception. And in that sense, you are you're driven to insanity. Or in Ignaro, you're, I you're like I, I, I'm going to disagree with that with in, in in reference to Ignaro. Although I'm sorry, I just interrupted. You, you haven't even let me fucking make yeah, my case sorry, about Ignaro. Sorry, in Ignaro, too many people, are, too many there, people, yeah. three people. In Ignaro, there is a, and we'll we'll get to it in more detail. This is why I was going to hold hold off on this, but like. In Ignaro, you are part of the pain of the particular insanity of Ignaro is a sense of isolation, a sense that everybody else is is onto something that you're not onto, and that you're separated from them. And even in its, it, it, like it, it's in the the notes that it struck in my own my own like re relating to it were notes of feeling uh, excluded and isolated and on your own. I would say that Manly Conclusions is a story about madness as conformity. Like this is the madness of like things working out exactly the way they always do and in horrible ways. Like it's a story about masculinity as a form of madness and like a very dumb, very clumsy and relentless and stubborn macho southern stereotypical masculinity that nonetheless nonetheless like steamrolls all the characters and they can't but totally succumb to it so to so me like sum summarize this is it a story your, about summarize it for your right reader, so this is a story Matthew. in which uh val jean sort of manages her and I, I would say it's not quite fair to call carpenter like just horrible he is definitely horrible but i think like there is a an odd kind of there is something that rings true about the the funny little compromises and, and tug of war in their relationship where like he has this huge, you know, the first line is, his his wife Val Jean admitted that Carpenter Petty had a tree-topping temper, but he was slow to lose it. That was in his favor. So she sort of, her whole attempt to change him is just an attempt to mitigate his terrible temper that he has. And it's a temper specifically about, you know, pride. He's, he's territorial about his rental property. Any sense that he has not been you know, sufficiently manly is, is a huge affront to him. And he, uh, and he gets into fights, he gets into trouble, uh, this way all the time. And then of course, the, the, the major conflict of this, this story comes from her concern that he is passing on this, uh, this obsession and this, this sort of madness to their son, whose name is Dennis. The, the occasion of the story is that their dog has been shot. Their dog lady. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Their dog, Lady, also Lady. ridiculous and totally credible <laughs> name for a dog. Lady is shot and they bury the dog while the son is is away so that he doesn't have to deal with that. Uh, Val Jean is concerned that, that Carpenter's going to get worked up and is going to go go try to seek out whoever shot uh, Lady. And, and it's unclear, is that, was this an accident? Was this something else? But then finally, Dennis gets home and over the table. And how Carpenter... old do you put Den How old do you make Dennis? Mm. I don't think it's said, but 10 he... to 12. Maybe? Yeah, that's where I would put him also. He yeah. carries like the po a poster board about for yeah. science class. I, he also, I... my, my suspicion is that this is a kid who, if he were growing up in the city, would talk in a much more worldly knowing way. For sure. And is, and is, and sounds a little bit more um, not dumb or simple, but, but just less, less, um, supercilious than he might be if he were, if he were just in a more crowded urban center. But the, the, the big terrible revelation of the story is of course that Carpenter, who is known to sort of nurse his grudges, 
seems to have gotten over his initial rage at, at Lady being shot. And then he reveals to Dennis at the dinner table that Lady was shot not once but twice. Once up close and once when she was from behind, when she was crawling away. And so the son very quickly, and I think this is the line the title comes from, proud of his ability to draw manly conclusions, recognizes that what this means in kind of an exciting, terrifying way is that whoever shot her knew her. At least at least that's what he and the dad conclude is that she went up to somebody who knew her pretty well, that she recognized and wasn't afraid of. That person shot her. She started to crawl away and then that person shot her again to finish her off. Carpenter, the, the husband, is sort of in, enjoying his righteous anger and the occasion of his son recognizing that like, something has to be done. He goes off to uh, to deal, he, he kind of, he identifies who he thinks might have done this and he goes off to confront this, these um, people and uh, Valjean in a, in, a, in a moment of panic goes to search for his gun and realizes, or they have many guns, which is also realistic. Uh, she finds that his pistol is missing. She goes chasing after Carpenter because she's terrified that he's brought his pistol along to, to shoot whoever this was. And uh, he chastises her and says, oh, no, of course I didn't bring my gun along. I'm not a maniac. But then they both have the same thought at the most ter same terrible moment that the son who has ridden his bicycle off to go to a scout meeting, uh, they run back and confirm that, of course, it is the son who has taken the gun. And by the time they get back to the house, the phone is ringing, which is, which is you know, as, as, you've, as you've suggested, the way 100,000 short stories have ended with, a, with an, you know, an ominous phone ringing. No, as you said, like nothing about the story is particularly new it all feels very much by the book and in fact like it's so much by the book that it's it's almost like the 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 occasion of the story is the son enacting an existing story that the that the parents sort of slightly too late recognize and and are not able to keep him from enacting also i think in in like somewhat meaningful defense of the story it is way shorter than both of these like ignaro is a much much longer story even a distant episode is substantially longer. This is an extremely short story. It's it's a really just like a little sketch. There is much less that it is able to do in this span. But I think I think it's very elegantly built. I think like if you're angry at it and bored, you know, like you, you don't have that much time to be angry and bored at it before it does the clearly inevitable thing that it's doing. But to me, like it all still rang to me very true and it just felt horribly inevitable in a way that still like unlike the unlike the Paul Bull story which felt to me like very sort of freshly and originally realized every little moment every little episode and, and, and like fragment of that felt like oh this is like I believe that this is happening and I am and like I'm I'm seeing or experiencing something in a new way this is not you know brilliantly written line by line but I I felt like horribly on the hook for every single moment of this story in a way that in the in the Paul Bull story I just felt totally repelled. Yeah, no, and it's I'll like also you, say like I predicted that both of you would hate it for slightly different reasons. And I also predicted that Alice would love it and I was right there as well. You win that prize. It's like uh, going to a restaurant, you know, and like the food's terrible, but at least the portions are small. You know, it's like a re reverse <laughs> yeah. of, of that old joke. It's like I, inviting I, your friend to a restaurant and saying like you're gonna hate this, but yeah, she'll but like don't it. Worry, not <laughs> of it. And someone who's not you have to order it. you all have to order the same thing. Most yeah. of you will dislike it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah Matthew, why what so could you explain to us for amusement, why you thought 
both of us wouldn't like it and why maybe you thought we'd like it for slightly different reasons. I thought, I think what I said in the text initially was that Brian would hate it because it would be too Southern for him and uh, <laughs> and Cameron would hate it because he would think the writing was unsophisticated. I mean, start, starting from what you, the reason why you said I would I would dislike it. I, I think of course you're, you're right that it's too Southern for me, but it's also so comically Southern that I, yeah. I can't, yes. it's, it's as though somebody was making fun of me by writing the right. story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like right. it, it's, 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 I, I remember a decade ago or so a, a friend asked me to, uh, to write a short story for their wedding to be, to be read um, at their, their marriage ceremony. So I wrote this. So it was the, the guys from Georgia and the, the woman's from Maryland. And I met her in college and they're both, you know, Brooklyn types, but I, so I, I wrote a sort of prose poemy thing as a 23 year old does where like I, it was, you know, like they meet at certain times in their life, like in the sandbox, and then they meet again when they're six and then they, and it doesn't work. And then they get married. It doesn't really make sense, but like it, it yeah, was yeah, appropriate yeah, yeah. for the, the wedding. But I, in one of these scenes, I imagined him as a teenager um, in Georgia. And the way I did, I did it was I, like, it was just, I, I was looking for it. I couldn't find it. I just remember he's like, he's like, uh, and upon his 19th birthday, like, uh, his father Probably told him, him he, could use, pipe and... could use him, he could use his spittoon for the first family <laughs> spittoon for the first time and sipping a mint julep on the porch. He laughed at the thought that races might get along. Like, <laughs> like even then he was in love with her, you know, like it was, right. it was a, you, you, you responded like lovely marriage piece. And I wrote my own and it was like, um, visiting Zabar's, his yarmulke fell off. And he, he couldn't, you know, the the pots and pans were a nickel more than they should, so he bargained them down. And like it, it has that. It's like a story about Jews written by an anti-Semite. Like it, it, it felt like a story about the South yeah. written by me. Like I, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I just. Yeah. Like their name, the names are Val Jean and Carpenter Perry and the yeah. the dog whom the guy needs to protect his name. Her name is Lady. And like the one thing he, he loves the most about his wife is the, uh, the biscuits, biscuits that yeah. she wastes <laughs> her own and the, yes. the laundry that she darns yeah. and like the, oh, man, I yeah. just like, uh. it was as though you were mocking me through every page of this. Yeah. Like, yeah. like mm. you think you know how... Like it, it was as though I wrote it to make fun of you, right. but somehow you presenting mm -hmm. it to me was like the biggest fuck you you could think of. So like, well played, checkmate, yeah, you yeah. win. I don't know what this <laughs> is, but it, it madness personified. It is. I mean, and and I I wonder if I'll, the first few times I read this story, I I certainly recognized it as being southern. I met Mary Hood, and she is a very very lovely, like extremely powdery billowy church lady southern lady. like she she feels she looks and seems and talks exactly the way you would expect and i and I, I should say this comes from a collection called how far she went which did which won a flannery o'connor uh, prize and i i think it's a it's a great collection this is the the story that, that that most stuck in my mind it didn't reading it part of my enjoyment of it wasn't that i felt like this is a real southern story but I also think that when you call attention to that, it is so, so over the top in its southernness that I wonder if I knew, like, if this were, if like the, the, if it said like manly conclusions by Philip Roth, like, I wonder <laughs> if I would read it and think like, 
you son of a bitch. It's like farce, I, I, right. Yeah, you I don't think, I right. don't know because I mean that and that the thing is like also like Joanna really loved her grandma's biscuits and like there are like every element of it also feels true and I think like in the same way that there are like there was something going around on the internet a few years ago that was like it was like a, a longer form version of the like what does a pencil have to do with a tape cassette like it was it was one of these but it was right, like, like if you recognize these like right. childhood memes then you're black to me i went through it and it was like oh or southern and like so right. much of it is just but it's like it's it's both like heartwarming and like insultingly stereotypical that's the thing is like portnoy's complaint is also like a novel about jews written by and it like it, it you know like yes. it's, it is also so over the top yes. but it it rings true in a funny way. I should, by the way, tell you that I did the thing you're describing once in college, not unwittingly, where I wrote, we were, I had to do like a one-man show in my drama school, and I did, not thinking it was a big deal, I did a one-man show in the voice of my best friend at the time, who grew up in Atlanta, but like from a an old uh, Manhattan family, a Jewish family. And boy, that's one of the few performances <laughs> I've done where like people actively walked out in the middle. <laughs> Um, which I, I would say, like, I actually thought, uh, like, I captured his voice relatively well, but I was like, it was me delivering it up on stage. So good. The, the last yeah. question I have about this story um, is, I I haven't read a story that was so, like, perfectly constructed in the way that we're taught to write in mm -hmm. MFA land. Like, yeah, I feel, yeah, yeah. like, when, Cameron, when you read a, a short story that begins, his wife, Valjean, admitted uh that carpenter perry had a tree-topping temper but he was slow to lose it you know that the story is going to be about somebody losing right. her, her temper yeah. right and right. When, when we're taught that you know in the beginning of learning stuff that is a compliment to the story like that, that's a, yeah, that's yeah. saying like good work mary hood um, when you read that, Cameron, do you roll your eyes at that, or yeah. like, I, like I do, or do you? Yeah, yeah. Then can you help articulate what, like, because it's so obvious, like it's such a trope that it, it's it it's insulting, or because it, it's simple minded, like for, for what what is it that that bothers you about it? What bothers me about it is it almost reads as patronizing, but I'm I'm interested in what what. Yeah, structurally, it just seems so boring. And then there's like the, the sort of tree topping. Is that is that a southernism? Is that like a little? Is that do people say that in the south? Because uh, that just that came out. I've heard, me I've heard versions of it, but it, but yeah, like it, that particular application of it is. This is probably the the only time I've seen it, but it doesn't. It it again, like it has the quality of feeling both both like theatrical and accurate. <laughs> yeah, so it came out yeah. to me as like theatrical and folksy and like slightly boring and cute. Like it would like it's. Like, like the cuteness of it, the cute folksiness of this sort of southern expression thrown into it just makes it even more horrible to me because it's like, oh, so it's going to be a sort of a story about a southern man losing his temper in a southern way. I wonder what that will be like. Oh, there's a dog called Lady. Oh, she's going to die. Oh, there's a son. Oh, they don't want to tell the son about the dog's <laughs> death. Oh, he's going to kill the people he shot the dog. Oh, oh, wow, it just happened. And like, my problem with the story overall is that if I, if, like, I will never write this story, but if I did, I think the most interesting place to start the story is when it ends and then keep writing from there. Mm -hmm. Because then yeah, you've I gone mean, through I, the types, you've gone through emotions, yeah. and then you get to yeah, yeah. the thing that happens after all the types are played in play, put into place. And that seems to be much more interesting now. 
a uh, a digression that that reminded me of is there's this this television show it's on hulu i don't know who made it before hulu but it's it's called the the bear have, have either of you yeah, familiar yeah, yeah, with this? Yeah, yeah. No, so it's it's it's, a, it's it's gotten really good reviews it's about restaurant world um and i was told by my friend with whom i share a hulu account that i would really like it because mm -hmm. he just watched it um so i turned it on and i watched it and i thought like this was great like i really am gonna like this it's like the best first episode i've seen of a show for a long time and then i went back to watch the second episode and i'm like oh i guess we're going back in time or, or something and then i realized that the episode i started with was the finale of the first season you ah, know? and like okay. it didn't matter at all like i understood all of the characters where everybody was coming from and it was just like an exciting introduction to this world and something exciting happening and i fascinating it, it made me i've never done that before accidentally like it i and it made me yeah. rethink like everything i've ever written and read like if yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. if this like highly regarded television show i could skip the first nine episodes and be delighted by the uh you know depth of character and plot machinations in the 10th episode like what that says about narrative in in general and that's yeah. something i would love you know a slee ricketts listener to to shoot matthew a, an email about because i i tried to read uh, i mean i tried to then watch the first three episodes and i couldn't because i knew where everything was going and it stopped interesting yeah. me. but i i it was a uh, a unique experience one that i'm happy i had even though it made me not want to watch the first nine episodes yeah, and, and not to then uh, break off into a show that uh, only two of us have seen, and or only one of us has seen all of, and that we're not supposed to be talking about today. But like, it did, just because you you mentioned that last episode, what what seemed to me most notable about it was that the first ten minutes were completely unnecessary because they were that to me like coming to that episode at the end was seeing like a a pretty restrained show about a guy who's like a family that's had a really horrible thing happen in recent memory, getting on and, and getting, you know, moving ahead with their lives. Uh, we then got 10 minutes of like pure straight, like by the book, Parul Seagull trauma plot monologue. Right. And it's right. like, it's so like maddeningly unnecessary that like that, that was, that actually infuriated me until we got past that. And then like the show became a good show again, but yeah, let's, yeah. Um, let's talk about the story we're here to talk about. I think yeah. what the, all three yeah, of us yeah, have yeah. the most to say about, which right. is the brilliantly titled, um, oh Ignaro. Oh, wait, let's, well, you have a last yeah, thought on the conclusion. Yeah. So this is like, um, let me do a really Matthew thing and like move through several like diversions to back to the story. So one of the things that I quite like about Slee Ricketts is that you and you, you, Matthew and Brian, both of you, I sort of watched something, a program or a film that seems to be big in American culture. And then a few weeks later, I get to this to an episode with you two like shitting on it. And it's quite amusing. So this happens with Don't Look Up which I thought was all right, but like, I can understand why you hate it. And it, yeah, I thought it was not, all right not, too. I, was, I hated yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I think I'm with you, Matthew there, but, and then it also happened with white Lotus, which is more connected mm. to the story yeah, yeah, yeah. because you two were hating on the fact that it opens with someone. Uh, we know that someone's shot being killed, but we don't know who. And you think this was, utterly sort of an unnecessary opener is that right it bothered, you, it bothered you more than it bothered me but i thought it was unnecessary it was like it felt contrived in a way that like it didn't seem it was not yeah i didn't i i thought it, it made the rest of the season um worse as opposed to better knowing yeah 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 the difference between that for me and this 
And I didn't really mind that, although I am totally open to either of you argue. I'm open to the argument that it makes the season worse, and I haven't really thought through that yet, so I couldn't step. I agree or disagree. But the difference between White Lotus and this story, to me, this story being many conclusions, is that whole, the whole premise of White Lotus is someone gets killed with, in the middle of this sort of mixture of obnoxious, obnoxious, mostly white people going to a high-class hotel, which is a story of types. There's also a story of types in a setting that we haven't quite experienced before and then has a murder mystery, which is a whole different type thrown in. And that worked for me, while this story, which is just types acting out their typish behavior in a type-like, type way, (laughs) just didn't work for me because I could see where I was going from the first sentence. And, you know, you were saying how um, the uh, Bowles narrative like switched you off to the characters and this switched you on to the characters. Total opposite. I hated all the characters of this story mm. almost immediately and it switched me off because I knew what was going to happen. And secondly, there's a short story called uh, Shirley Jackson, a short story by Shirley Jackson which I just looked up and it's called The Renegade, which I read a mm. few years ago, which is basically about a woman whose dog, also called Lady, is alerted by the neighbours that the dog has been killing chickens and the neighbours pressure mm. her into killing the dog and this pressure becomes more and more insane through the day and there's a sort of building atmosphere of threat. And that story just seemed a hundred times better to me in my recollection because it wasn't just that, oh, the son's going to kill the people who killed the dog. It's that, this entire neighborhood has sort of turned into a sort of strange, uncan- uncanny, threatening honor culture that wants this woman to kill their dog. And that story had real stakes. I didn't know who would kill the dog and if they'd kill the dog. This story to me has no stakes because I know who's going to kill the dog's killers almost, like, almost immediately. I don't, I don't think that's, that's what stakes is, though. Like, you're, like, that is a difference. That is a meaningful difference, but that's a difference in like suspense. It's not a difference in stakes. Mm. Right? Stakes are like, what is at risk for the people that you care about, right? Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right there. And maybe the problem for me is that the pe- I don't care about the people. So there's no yeah, stakes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It just, just this story seemed, it just seemed cobbled out of so many things that either were immediately obvious or reflected back to other things that are much better. That just made me so hate the story. And when I think about it more and more, hate it more and more. Like my hatred is growing, not declining. Yeah. 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 I mean, all of that totally makes sense. I think a particular emotional ache that I have experienced in thinking about people from growing up, and I think Ryan has even more kind of extreme versions of this growing up in Macon, it's watching people succumb to cliche in just a thoroughly predictable way, but that is still moving in part because of their awareness of it and their and their hope and attempt not to do it, the exact thing that you always knew was going to happen. Um, so I think I think that's sort of what I that's what really tugs at me about this story mostly. But I also recognize, like I think everything, all of your criticisms are are accurate, but it strikes a nerve with me that I think I could definitely see it not striking for, for lots of people. And maybe this is cultural to an extent because neither me or Brian grew up in the South, right? But I mean, my question would be how, because I don't want to discount any, I don't want to discount the idea that people should write stories about people succumbing to cliches. Yeah. My question would be how to write a story about people succumbing to cliches without the story seeming mimetic in its own clichedness. Yeah, That's I think I think like I'd a very interested. good example of that that 
that I know lots of people hated, <laughs> at least my dad really hated, <laughs> was uh, I'm thinking of ending things, which is which is at least in the movie version, it is very much a story about a man with who is a total cliche, who has no original ideas. Every thought that he's ever had is cribbed from some like not even particularly obscure movie or book that he once encountered. And and yet the story is told in a way that is like wildly dazzlingly not cliched and even to like sort of would be a relief if it were a little bit less original at times. Yeah. So I think like I think that's a thing one can do and I and I and I, I love that movie too. So I you know, I uh, I think it's a totally reasonable question and um I, I can't I probably can't defend my weakness for that particular kind of story beyond its existence. Um, let's talk about Ignaro though, which is as, as Brian said, brilliantly named the name I am so angry about. like I can't that's what I keep getting angry. I, I quite liked the story. I reread it today. I liked it even more today. This is Cameron's suggestion. It's by M. John Harrison who also wrote the short story that we talked about uh, that I can't even remember the name of because it was so boring and forgettable. Jack of Mercy's. Jack of Mercy's terrible, opaque, meaningless story. Whereas this, uh, this one I totally connected with and it felt very human and it, it, it's, it's quite long. I think maybe it, it should be a little shorter, but it's, I, I totally responded respond to this in a, in a very like personal way. I just am so, so mad about the title, which we'll get to, but do you want to <laughs> give a, a, Brian, do you want to, you want an opening comment on it before we get a little summary? Uh, yeah. I thought it was dumb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Cameron, you want to, you want to summarize it for us real quick? Sure. So Ignora is a story by M. John Harrison and he, he just, he just judged the uh, Booker prize, which is a big prize in England. He was one of the judges. So he's kind of getting his moment in the limelight around now, which is good because he still, he earned it in the 60s and he's it's overdue. But Egnaro is one of his shorter stories, published in the 1980s, I think. And it's about, well, it's about, it's about a man called Lucas, who the narrator does finance work for. And Lucas is the owner of a bookshop that also sells porn and magazines and cassettes. And Lucas becomes obsessed with this idea that there's an undiscovered country called Egnaro, spelled E-G-N-A-R-O, which we will get into why Matthew hates that. Lucas gets obsessed with this idea that there's an undiscovered country called Egnaro. Not only is this undiscovered, but almost everyone else knows about it in some way. And you hear about the story in conversations, not your own. That's a quote from the story. In conversations, not your own. You hear about Egnaro. And Lucas becomes obsessed in this quest to find out about Egnaro, gather information, go there as a kind of, um, he, he feels sort of, uh, what, what's the word when, when one is been, one, one is like too late to something. What's the word? Belatedness. He, there's a belate, he's, he's terrified of this becoming sort of invaded and becoming just another part of the Western modern world. And he's terrified by his own belatedness. And, Lucas sort of goes through this psychological breakdown. He, as characteristic of a Harrison story, never actually finds anything worth about Egnaro. He eventually goes slightly insane and has sort of a rant and screams at children on the street after his shop gets closed down. And then at the end, Lucas has totally forgotten about Egnaro. He's obsessed now with American fast food and has sort of become a, an entrepreneur of importing fast food to England because that was nice. Like, that he gets really excited yeah, about fast food was a nice touch, I thought. <laughs> 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 
I agree. That was my favorite part of the story. It's like, if you've noticed that I'm fatter, it's because I sell fast food. (laughs) Yeah, so this is England in the 80s before American fast food chains hadn't quite gained a large foothold in it, I think. I I wasn't there. Uh, But the sort of twist, which I will admit is a rather expected twist, it's not very original twist, is that the narrator now is obsessed with Ignaro and sort of his entering his own sort of personal obsessive and we guess ultimately failed search for it when the story ends. But so that's, that's a broad not, but that's like, story. That's not a twist. That's the, that's the thing. Is like, I no. thought a lot about your description, Brian, of this, which was that like, Manly Conclusions is very much a very simple mousetrap of a story. Like that is yes. a story where you have the one twist, the what, like everything's, but, but like, and, and you're right that the, the Paul Bull story is a series of like, like cliffs or shelves that escalate. Or escalations. Pro- sure. Yeah, progressively. Mm. Ignaro, to me, is just like a, a slope. Because it doesn't open by saying like, uh, this guy I knew, Lucas, was obsessed with this country. The, the opening sentences are, Ignaro is a secret known to everyone but yourself. It is a country or city to which you have never been. It is an unknown language. At the same time, it is like being cuckolded or plotted against. It is part of the universe of events which will never wholly reveal itself to you. A conspiracy, the barest outlines of which, once visible, will gall you forever. Like, it's not even that there is something inevitable about the narrator becoming obsessed with Ignaro as well. It's that like we we are almost told explicitly from the beginning that he's obsessed with it. There, there's no, to me, like everything about the story was predictable, but it, it we're just watching this slow, I- inexorable progression toward this sort of worse condition. To me, like- yeah, I'm, I'm okay yeah. with that, Reed. I, I, I do think that um, Harrison's trying to have it both ways and not inappropriately. I, I think that, a, a lot of good narrative work begins with hinting at something, having a reader forget it, and then in a moment remember it again and have that have some power to it. So I don't, I, I don't mind that at all. My, my question to you both before we get into this is: Is this an analogy for something? Are we? Is it? Oh yeah. Is, is it real? Yeah. Is it? Yes. What are we? What am mm. I meant to? What, what am I meant to to like about this? Like I, I, it's. It's sort of whiny, and and I'm I'm I would say falsely poetic, although I'm the the, the least qualified to judge poetry of of um, the three of us. But like, it is both a city and it is like being cuckolded. Like I just don't. But before we get into what bothers me on the sort of short story yeah, narrative yeah, yeah. level, like what is this? What what what's going on here? Are we meant to? think that everybody in the story is um, is misguided to the extent that when they sort of spout immature cliche, it's because isn't that similar to something else? Or are we meant to not think this is immature cliche? Like what what it, what am I meant to think this is referring to? We're definitely supposed to think it's immature cliche. I've read Harrison way he is poetic and he is poetic in, in, a, in ways that most good poetry isn't poetic. So when you get these lines um that's my example i mean just like the line on on my page one but he's talking about the office uh lucas's office and he says i hated the office with its litter of half empty plastic cups and plates of congealed food that to me is like the before you start editing like what you write as a placeholder for a messy office like is that what are we what are we meant to do with that i don't know i mean it didn't I, that's where, like, I think I 
that didn't bother me. It also felt like the no. the clichedness of his life and of his failure is to me like I I connect with that the same way I do with many conclusions. Where I where I am in agreement with you is that I think like the whole story could probably have been could have had some air squeezed out of it and been compressed several pages. So I think I just think like it goes on quite a long time, and it's probably sentences like that that he could have cut or squeezed to get to make this not quite so rambling a story. But right, it didn't bother me. Yeah, it didn't didn't offend me. I, I agree with that, and I think the older Harrison, the Harrison now would agree. Like, I can't speak on Harrison's behalf, but from what he said about his short stories and how little short stories of his older period he includes in newer collections, I do think he is, he would cut a lot of this if it came out, if he edited a collection. But so getting back to the original point, when the false poeticism about Ignara, I found a sentence, here's one. A woman at a dinner party murmurs, <laughs> Ignaro where the long sunlit esplanades lift from a wine-dark sea. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. this is obviously cliché poetic. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. right. Now, wine-dark... You know, derivation of Homer and, and of course. the long yeah. sunlit esplanades yeah, yeah, yeah. is just it, out a, of commercialism. Yeah. So there's Egnaro, the whole joke of Egnaro, apart from it being a word about backwards, is that... It's orange it is, backwards. Yeah. This word is orange backwards. God damn it. I like this story. I'm still angry about that. It's just such a dumb, dumb, dumb choice. But is but, but yeah. it's not isn't it isn't it consistent with the rest? I, I don't understand yeah. how you're able to separate the name from the story name of the story with the general tone and word choice of the, the story. It I seems think, all purposefully cheesy to me. Yes, it is I think it yeah, is purposely course. cheesy. I think the I think the resolvedness of that like the solvability of that answer is is actually a false note for the story. I think I think like 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 there, there's a, there's a secondary theme to the story that I do want to get to in a little bit that I think like he he betrays that with his title. Like the title tells us he is superior to this problem. And I think like the whole strength of the story is that none of us is superior to this problem. And especially the readers and writers and intellectuals and dreamers among us are super susceptible to this problem. And yes, it's totally embarrassing. And yes, it's cliched. And yes, it's sappy and sentimental. Mm -hmm. Spelling orange backwards in the title to me is Harrison saying, but not me. I'm above it. Oh, and but that's what that, it but, most offends but, me. But about. that's what I was talking about earlier when I when I talked about this sentence, which you both dismissed when I talked about its litter of half empty plastic cups and plates of congealed food. Yeah. If Cameron says that Harrison is capable of writing in a cleaner, more elegant way, but he's choosing to dumb down his own, you know, tone, verbiage, word choice, whatever, in order to give us this character writing in the first person, he's saying he's better than all these people from the beginning. The, he's writing yeah, I, down I towards these I, about these people in general. He never includes himself as one of them. That's not what I would say about that writing. And that's, first of all, like the writing in that sentence doesn't seem to me remarkable much in one way or the other, except that it's it's taking up a lot of words to not do a whole lot of work. But like a moment I really like in this story is Lucas tries to tries to introduce the narrator to this concept of Ignaro and this sort of, it's very clumsy where he like pulls out this book and he kind of, he like pretends that he's, he's fumbling through it. Clearly he hands the book to the guy, the book falls open. Clearly he's been staring at this one page so much and he hands the guy this book and he kind of reads this sort of like in the book, it says after a description of the strange secret country, it says in India, newly married couples wade in the estuarine mud, catching fish in a new garment. 
What do you see, their friends call from the bank. Sons and cattle, is the answer. Are we to doubt that India exists? In the Dark Ages, they had never heard of America. When the Jew of Tunis exhibited a fish's tail on a cushion, did anyone doubt that it was a fish? Now, the, guy, the narrator's first response is, I don't quite see what he's getting at, <laughs> which totally makes sense. Like, I, to like, I, totally, I totally buy that. And then Lucas says, ah, he, he thought for a moment he had expected my reaction I could see, but was disappointed all the same. You saw the hole in his argument, though. You saw through that. Oh, yes, I said as positively as I could. I saw that. And then, and then it says, but he seemed dissatisfied. He stared at me for some time as if I, try, as if I had tried to mislead him over something obvious. The thing I love about this moment is that Lucas is showing him this weird, bullshitty, rambly book about this guy who's excited about this very like confused way of thinking about the known and the unknown. He hands it to the guy. The guy has a very normal response, which is to kind of politely say like, ah, I don't. Mm, I'm not sure I follow because what the fuck is this? And then is and then he calls him out on this specific thing. He says, "You saw the hole in his argument," and the guy's response is not what I think would be the the, the honest response, or at least my response, which is like, uh, "Our argument was the, uh, yeah. a hole." It's his response is, exactly, oh, yeah. "Oh yes, I I saw that." And so to me, like, there's doubled like there's Lucas is embarrassing, and his obsession with Ignaro is is juvenile, and and it's like. It's like embarrassing the way like watching an older guy fall in love with a younger woman from a distance is embarrassing from the outside, even though you also understand that from the inside, like he's he's sort of in the throes of this feeling. But also the narrator is doing a dumb, embarrassing, vain little thing that people do in conversation, which is pretending to be even more in the know about something like he 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 was very quick to say like oh i i can see through the the illusion i can see this i get i get the joke and so i think like that's the the sort of the double edge of ignaro throughout this is that mm. uh is that like we like I, what it really reminded me of was like it, like when i've had like moments of like intense existential crisis with like being sort of dizzied by the prospect of my own mortality like having like that being like in you know directly confronted because of a diagnosis because of some weird thing or some crisis might like like being directly confronted with the specter of my the like the the death of my physical body and just being horrified by that and kind of unable to think of anything but that and be like and then you go out in the world and you still have to like get groceries and like go meet your friend for coffee and, stuff. and like it seems like everybody else around you is totally insane. But at the same time, the thing you know that's driving you crazy is the most obvious thing in the world that everybody already knows. And so the, these thing, two things are happening, which is like, for one, your condition is embarrassing and it is sort of childish because like you're having this meltdown over this basic fact of life that all of us know and have known forever. But then what's also true is that all the people around you who, if you were to bring this up, would like laughingly shrug it off or like say some cliche about it, they're also not being honest with themselves. Because the thing, the reason that it's ridiculous to have a meltdown over your immortality is that in order to get through our days, we sort of all conspire to say like, let's not think about that right now. Let's not worry about that right now. So I think like that's the double edge of Ignaro that I felt like rang really true, that it, it is totally embarrassing, but also like, he is to some extent right, not about everybody being in on it or everybody having a conspiracy against him, but about the the, the like slight falseness of everybody's dismissal of this embarrassing thing. I, I do agree with you that placing spending orange backwards does in some way place the uh, the author above the chaos, the sort of the problem the story is trying to work out in a way that doesn't seem to suit the theme. 
But if we take the last sentence of the story, which is, if Egnaro is the substrate of mystery, which underlies all daily life, then the reciprocal of this is also true. It is the exact dead point of ordinariness, which lies beneath every mystery. Do you not think that that uh, is a little, a small defense of spelling orange backwards, that in some way orange is a, a joke, not just at the author's expense, but at everyone's expense? Yeah, I mean, I do think that I, I think the argument of the last line make is, is a good argument. I think that the, the orange is so dumbly arbitrary that it feels it, it, it like because that the, like part of what makes it so uh, devastating that that like the, the things that we get stirred up by, whether it's a like a erotic love or a, like an existential crisis or a like a maddening pursuit of art or perfection or something like whatever it is like the flip side of it he's right is utter cliche and ordinariness but it's also a sort of an inescapable necessary ordinariness whereas this the orange thing just feels to me so dumbly i mean i guess i would be even madder if it were like life backwards or something but it feels so dumb and disposable brian is looking pained at everything that we've said over the last five minutes no, I mean, I, I would just like to hear, I mean, what, your speech, Matthew, about when something obsesses you and you go out into the world and it doesn't obsess everyone else, I think is very well said and, and why I love you. Like, I, I think that that, that experience is, um, is something that we've all experienced, whether, you know, through, through heartbreak or, yeah, as you yeah. say, physical malady of some kind or anxiety about I mean, our imagine having or, having, or having your condition that you've lived with has to right be a right right, like right. i mean yeah. it's it, it, people live their life covering to to, to that extent yeah. where you go out into the world and you can't believe that everyone isn't you know mourning with you or like yeah, what, yeah. whatever the version of, of that is but i i don't know if that's what the story is doing to, to you it's obvious that there to, to both of you it's obvious yeah, that there's yeah. some analog there that's that's clear and that is meaningful but like yeah. He re, he says in one of his moments of enthusiasm about the search for orange spelled backwards, what if all, I, I used to think, what if all the maps were wrong? What if the maps were all wrong and the world was full of undiscovered countries? And then he goes, undiscovered countries, what a joke. Yeah. So like, you can interpret that to mean anything. And, and if if you want that, I mean, it's like, Back when I was young, I used to be full of uh, fantasy or optimism or something, and I no longer am. Yeah, like, I don't get. I don't. This is now Brian talking. Like I don't get it. I don't know what he's what he's referring to. He could be referring to anything. Like I, I don't. You, you, what, what you just pinpointed in your soliloquy about pain and people not recognizing it is poetic and human and and beautiful. It, is that in the story uh, where, where like it's a, it, it, once again, from the, from the top, Ignaro is a secret known to everyone, but yourself. It is a country or a city to which you have never been. It is an unknown language. At the same time, it is like being cuckolded or plotted against. I don't, I don't get it. So there are aspects of Lucas's obsession that, that don't strike a nerve for me. So like, 
when he says, don't you see, he appealed, if I don't find something out soon, they'll get there before me. His shoulders shook. That's the real horror of it, don't you see? If there really is such a place, then by the time I get there, it'll be just the same as it is here. That that response is one that like the, whatever the correlative to that is, I, I don't, I don't, it doesn't make me feel anything. Really? Whereas, that really made me feel something. Well, well. So, so by contrast, later on, after he's he's lost his all of his stock and he's gone to the um, auction to try to buy some of it back, it says Lysistrata had gone at the beginning, at the beginning of the auction, stuffed in among a bunch of old science fiction magazines. He seemed stunned that no one there could tell the difference, and that's such a good little I agree. choice that's, because that's it, my favorite it's, line it's, it's, in it's the that whole story. Double-edged, it's double-edged. It's like he's obviously ridiculous for for being such a such a, a pedant and a nerd and a weirdo, but also like he's right to be appalled that people couldn't tell the difference between Lysistrata and a bunch of old sci-fi magazines. And then and then shortly after that, there's just a little throwaway note. Uh, uh, he seemed reluctant to be on his own, and in the afternoon insisted we go to the cinema where we watched uncomprehendingly some sort of comedy. Which again is like it's a great it's, it's a great, great depiction of like great other people things seeming obvious to other people that don't make sense to you in an intuitive instinctive way that, that like comedy works. But like you're similar right, similar to that line, just yeah. as we're naming lines, yeah, 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 really yeah. like my favorite line in the story, in addition to the ones you just read, are I caught him pasting press cuttings into a series of scrapbooks he had kept since he was fourteen, recording with a kind of morose glee the bankruptcies and deaths of the fifties pop stars <laughs> who had been his adolescent heroes yeah, yeah, to me yeah. that is deep and smart and perceptive yeah, yeah. and how you can idolize somebody and then experience the schadenfreude of their downfall like i, yeah, I yeah, yeah. to me that that hit home right. i just don't understand what the story is about i guess like the there were enough moments that to me lined up with this larger feeling and response i've experienced that it, it felt to me like that's what sort of what the story was mostly getting it but there were also as i said like there, these passages where I kind of shrug my shoulders. And so So Cameron, where yeah. is Matthew right? Where am I wrong? What are we missing? What is your uh, general take listening to us discuss something that you hold in such high esteem? So in England, we call college or sixth form is the stage, I think, when you're 16 or 17, just before you go to university. And the end of that, we had high school, the end of high school, Americanism. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. At the end of that, we had a sort of an, another Americanism that we everyone decided that we should have yearbooks for some reason. And people would have, <laughs> everyone would have a yearbook. And on this yearbook, each page would have like a photo of someone and a quote. And someone, I don't really know this person that well, had a photo of them. And their quote was, born too late to explore the world, born too early to explore the universe, born just right to read dank memes online. But like the third line is superfluous to what this story but right. there's sort of this amusing thing about belatedness and how they're putting sort of the banal and the, the commonplace and sort of the dank memes in relation to sort of exploring the universe and sure, yeah. sort of uh, the world. This sort of fear about belatedness is what I read very deeply, or at least one of the themes I read very deeply into this story, that Lucas is terrified that he's living in a modern world where sort of everything's been discovered before he's had a chance and that his life has been sort of shaved down to him selling books that no one can ever, people written by other people, read by people who don't even understand how good they are or, or how bad they are. And this is why he gets obsessed with him being the first person to discover Ragnaro, because to him it's a way out of the modern world. But even he's fallen into the trap that Ragnaro, wherever he hears it, 
is described in sort of cliched scraps of commercialism and bad poetry. And in a way, it has already been found as a linguistic, as a linguistic idea, at least. It's been found and colonized by this sort of bad poetic mod- modern world. So he's fallen into this trap where he wants to find something that isn't modern, even though everything, all the clues to it are, in that sense, elements of the belated modernness he wants to escape. And that, I think, is sort of, sort of the emotional core that I find so fascinating in this story, this sort of fear over belatedness, because I, I find that very relatable, the idea that you, you've come to a party late. I mean, I was, I was talking to someone online recently about poetry, and they said, oh, um, I wish I was one of the modernists of the 20th century, I, or I wish I was with Keats in the early 19th century, and these romantic, you know, uh, these generations sort of had this um, up, upspreading of creative inventiveness and great poetry and we don't seem to have that right now and whatever you think of that and i think he's probably right that seems to be the same fear that lucas is lost to at the moment with Agnaro. it's funny i think that slid off my back because in a way it's too specific like the second i read the opening sentence of the story i thought like well Ignaro is like MacGuffin, is suitcase in pulp fiction is like variable x there's a there's a um a, a borja story called the zahir where there's a there's a there's an object that sort of has a similar effect and that there's there's at some point in time one person is totally obsessed with it but the zahir could be anything it could be like a hat it could be a coin it could be a place it could even be like a time of day in a certain location and it and it's it's sort of it's a pure motive a pure like it, all it has to be is the object of obsession. And so to me, like in a way by, by making Ignaro by like obsessing more specifically about the belatedness of finding Ignaro, the way like that, that was dissonant to me with the, with the broadness of the conceit to begin with. And so I think that's why I probably didn't connect with it, but I think, yeah, like the Miniver Chibi kind of problem. I, I do, I, I can relate to that. Why does he make fun of the way the waitresses talk? Oh, I think yeah, it just felt like casual harder. racism. Mm. Casual uh, racism of the yeah. author. Yeah. Yeah, I can't really defend that part of the story either. Yeah. I can defend Harrison and say that he is mostly pretty good with race, especially yeah, yeah, in his yeah, later yeah. stories. I mean, and this sure, is an early sure. work, yeah. but I can't, I can't defend this. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I, like, it, to me, like, that just felt like a, uh, a, a flaw of the human writer. Yeah. That is a thing that we recognize as like being especially glaring in works from some other era. And like, there are things we're all doing today that we don't realize that other people will. Yeah. That, that's all that seemed like to me. That's fair. Yeah. Brian, what are your, what sort of your, after hearing all this, do you, are you still sort of in the same place you always were with this story? No, I see that this story, uh, I, this is going to sound dismissive, but I mean it sincerely. I see that the story touched both of you in a way that made some hard to articulate aspect of yearning or fear or desire find language in a way it doesn't typically in both of your lives. And that is very valuable and it succeeded in that way and it didn't for me. And I think that that might be enough of a, of a place to land. That was this week's show. 
I will, as I said, I will try to put some version, I'll try to make some version of these three stories accessible in the show notes. Uh, they're all worth reading. And maybe, and if, if, let me put it this way. If you, if you think that I was right about any of them and the other two were wrong, then please do write and let me know. But tr- truly let me know whatever you think. Uh, you can reach me as always at sleevericketts at gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Until then.